You're listening to Health Center in the Catskills on WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains. Well, in the 1970s, I was advocating for a boycott of Nestle's as part of a global movement to stop that company from unethical marketing of its infant formula to poor women who couldn't afford the formula. They, They would be provided by Nestle's with free formula until their breast milk dried up. So they would dilute the formula because they couldn't afford to buy the formula. They would dilute the formula to be able to continue to feed their infants. Infant mortality rates skyrocketed as these infants died from malnutrition and infection from contaminated water that was being used to dilute the formula. The boycott was effective at that time, but now Infant formula companies are back at it, marketing their products in ways that are undermining breastfeeding. One person who's been trying to bring attention to this issue is Dr. Cecilia Tamori. Dr. Tamori is an associate professor and director of global public health and community health at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing with a joint appointment at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's a Hungarian-American anthropologist and public health scholar who investigates the structural and socio-cultural drivers that shape health illness, and health inequities. She is internationally recognized for her expertise on breastfeeding, infant sleep, and maternal child health. She's an author of the 2023 Lancet Breastfeeding Series, three books on breastfeeding and reproduction, and she has a a number of other publications on a range of public health topics. Uh, Cecilia, thank you so much for joining me today on Health Cetera and the Catskills. Thank you so much for having me. So let's let's start with what we know about the benefits of breastfeeding, just sort of high level. What what are the benefits for the mother and for the infant? Right. And so you've done such a great job outlining some of the key issues. Breastfeeding really is a key to public health and foundational to both infant and young child health as well as maternal health. So um, about 800,000 Infants and young children die annually globally from not being able to be breastfed appropriately because breastfeeding provides optimal nutrition, hydration, and major impacts on protection from infectious as well as non-communicable diseases. And for maternal health, the primary impacts, which are probably less well-known, have to do with the prevention of breast and ovarian cancers and also pretty significant impacts on cardiovascular and metabolic health as well. And and there, there's a lot of work on the maternal infant bonding that occurs with breastfeeding. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it is really both, um, we, we call it a very fancy name, a biopsychosocial system that is species specific. So, you know, breaking that down, it has a biological component, psychological component, and psychosocial component as well. And so you're absolutely right. There are um, social elements to this. We, you know, we often focus on some of the biological elements, but of course there is an element of interacting with the infant and providing the opportunity for interaction. So obviously interaction can happen in many different ways, but um, breastfeeding is a very important part of our evolutionary history and it facilitates that closeness that is core to development. So 
closeness depends on, um, you know, a lot of different factors, obviously, and we can make systems that facilitate that closeness happen. And then breastfeeding really contributes to cementing the, not just the physical uh, proximity, but also the psychosocial proximity between the mother and the birthing parent and the infant. Now, uh, so there's some women who say, I can't, I couldn't breastfeed, I can't breastfeed, or that have to return to work too soon. Um, what, what do we know about why, why people don't breastfeed? It's such a great question. Um, what we really know is that most people would like to breastfeed um, when they're pregnant. They start out wanting to breastfeed and they understand that this is really important for the health of the child and and many of them also understand it's important for the birthing person but unfortunately there are systemic barriers um, that prevent people from being able to realize these goals and those barriers primarily occur in the health system itself Um, oftentimes we have very little support within health systems so we know that um, only about half, a little bit under half of infants globally are placed on the mother's body right after birth, which is one of the ways that really helps get breastfeeding going. So that's kind of a, a reflection of a health system barrier. Providers often lack knowledge and oftentimes postpartum people lack skilled support for breastfeeding. Um, and many, many people, both in the formal and the informal work fa- work uh, setting, face numerous barriers from being able to continue with breastfeeding. So if they're able to establish breastfeeding, then unfortunately the continuity drops off because work environments are often very, very unsupportive. And then of course, you know, the third dimension that um, we started out talking about is that companies are also taking advantage of these weak systems and marketing in uh, predatory ways that also undermines breastfeeding. Yeah, you know, I, I want to just share with you and with, with listeners that I was recently involved in studying how nurses are um, pushing the levers to dismantle structural racism in the profession, in academia, and in healthcare. And we spoke to one nurse manager of an obstetric unit who said that they had very large disparities among black and white uh, uh, women who who were went home um, breastfeeding, even even though. Their intent, the, the intent to breastfeed was similar when they came, they were admitted. And this was not an all-white unit. It was mixed in terms of, of the staff, the nursing staff. And they were able to, to, by knowing that, realize that the point had to be that there were some differential intervention points between how staff approached the black mothers and how they approached the white mothers. And so the unit worked very hard to change that. And so these structural issues that get in the way of of women breastfeeding can be very subtle. And unless you're looking for them, as these nurses were, um, we're not going to fix them. So so you're, you've been very concerned about how these companies are marketing infant formula and taking advantage of, of, of the lack of supports for women to breastfeed. Tell us about this. 
Yeah, and, and to your point, I think these factors are intersecting, and so the inequities run through this entire landscape. So a lot of times people who are racial minorities and from marginalized communities are bearing the brunt of these inequities because of the way in which the systems compound one another through structural racism, both within the U.S. and um, on the global stage as well. And so marketing fits into that larger narrative um, because marketing from the beginning, even before the boycott started, has had this really ugly underside where it was systematically exploiting and targeting communities that were poor globally. Um, so in fact, formula marketing has intersected with colonization um, very, very profoundly from, from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. It traveled on colonial routes and uh, marketing expanded over time into post-colonial settings. So some of the, the background to that boycott was this history of exploitive practices that were happening particularly by European and North American companies um, and targeting people in the global south, but also um, increasingly various groups, mi- minority groups within those settings as well, within both Europe and in the United States and in Canada. So there's some really pretty awful examples of uh, ways in which uh, governments, in fact, sometimes under the aegis of, you know, health, improvements in health, were undermining breastfeeding and um, sort of supplanting indigenous practices uh, with formula. So that was a, that is a part of that history, which is really, really awful. Um, and in terms of the contemporary situation, these practices never went away. I think one of the common um, pieces that we, we just have not had a lot of attention to, partly I think because we haven't had media attention to it, is that after the breakout ended, you know, we enacted a, an international code of marketing of breast milk substitutes in 1981. And I think a lot of people believe that that the issue was resolved. But unfortunately, um, the companies have never really adhered to the code and the subsequent resolutions and, in fact, expanded their market, particularly in the last couple of decades, globally. And so what we're seeing is a rise in marketing, particularly in the digital realm, um, all mm-hmm. over the world. And uh, we see a very complex pattern where marketing is really targeting everybody all the way from you know parents and caregivers to health professionals to policymakers, basically in service of increasing profits, but unfortunately at a very high cost to health. And so it ranges really from uh, very subtle uh, but very effective strategies that misconstrue infant behavior. So typical infant behavior gets misconstrued um, and the solution to various problems that are, you know, normal behavior essentially, but being framed as problems is a product that people uh, are recommended to purchase. And can you, uh, yeah, can you stop for a minute and give me give us an example of that? Oh, sure, absolutely. So there's a lot. If you look at uh, you know, and the Lancet, of course, has some. Uh, mock-ups of the actual, you know, sort of pictures and images that are used, but also some of the health claims, almost all um, these products 
has a large number of health claims on them. And so there are claims about how the product is closer to breast milk, how mm. the product improves fussiness or crying or um, mm. improves sleep. Um, and very, very commonly, the idea that the product will make the baby intelligent. Wow. And so there's a whole range of claims. And, you know, we've looked at the literature on these claims and, you know, the citations and the references for them. And, you know, the claims are basically very poorly supported by science or unsupported by scientific literature. And so these and they're very, very effective. So we also had a very, very large study that the WHO commissioned across, I believe, eight countries with over 8,000 participants and, and looked at sort of what people said about, you know, what they saw, you know, what they experienced in their own lives in terms of marketing. And basically, they found that uh, the, these images and the claims are very, very effective. So people said, you know, oh, yes, you know, I trust this product because it has scientific means on it. They, I don't understand what that means, but it looks, you mm. know, real. Oh. Or it says that it goes to my baby's brain, so it must be good, you know. And a lot of times, you know, and this is relevant to all the health professionals who may be listening, health professionals are also targeted. So oh. a lot of the recommendations are coming from health professionals who are trusted, authorities you know yeah. that parents turn to and and we should point out that while these companies are marketing the infant formula we don't have marketing campaigns for breastfeeding right right we don't quite have the same um, resources available so we're talking about a 55 billion dollar industry that's probably an underestimate um and you know with very sophisticated marketing campaigns and you know like i said claims that are not not supported very well by science so um you know basically what we are arguing here is that really we need to put an end to this kind of approach and you know all these previous approaches have not worked what we are calling for in the lancet is to actually end this practice of marketing altogether which doesn't affect any issues around availability or production mm -hmm. so you know the idea that you know everybody should be able to make a decision about infant feeding everybody we should be able to make it in a transparent well-informed way and then proceed accordingly and have you know products available as they wish um but because we know that most people really would like to breastfeed we also also know that marketing is very very effective unfortunately at undermining breastfeeding you know all not just at the parent and the health professional level but also at the policy level so there's a whole other arm of the marketing playbook that actually targets policymakers both mm -hmm. nationally and on the global stage to prevent regulation that would potentially limit marketing or actually follow the international code of marketing of breast milk substitutes. Um, so there's a lot of things that are happening at the policy and the regulatory stage, unfortunately, um, that are also that are far less visible. They're much harder to get a handle on for the general public versus things that you might be able to see, you know, on displayed on the product itself. So some of it is quite insidious. Some of it is also about having front groups and nonprofit groups that appear to be doing beneficial things that um, basically enhance the reputation of the company. Um, at the same time, the company is also acting to undermine mm. breastfeeding and continues to violate these uh, rules that the World Health Assembly has adopted over 40 years ago. So, you know, unfortunately, not only have we not 
been successful at actually stopping this activity. The activities are expanding globally, um, and it really is quite visible in the increasing sales across all the products and the diversification of products, including products that actually are completely unnecessary. So we're talking about products that are aiming for toddlers, for example, other specialty products that are expanding the range of use well beyond infancy, and these are products that are not necessary under any circumstances for young children. Now, you know, sometimes, you, you, you know, we women do need to use infant formula, um, and, uh, and so let's talk about what is the appropriate role for infant formula. Absolutely. So I think most of us in this um, world of public health and um, infant and young child feeding would like to see a system where, you know, breastfeeding is supported as a default. When that is not available, the first line really would be either expressed uh, mother's own milk, a birthing parent's own milk, or um, donor human milk. And so that would be sort of uh, another interim step that I want to just raise attention to is that we should be scaling up access to human milk which has been done in some other nations, particularly in Brazil, um, but it's something that we should be working on, and there's actually a bill that's aiming to accomplish that right now that, is, that we're hoping will be uh, passed eventually so people can read about that. But um, in terms of appropriate role beyond that, when that's not available, that's the time when we want people to be able to have access to infant formula. And, of course, anybody who doesn't wish to breastfeed, um, should have access to infant formula. So again, none of this is about the availability and accessibility of formula. Mm -hmm. We're talking about um, people who are wanting to breastfeed and who are, who are not being able to realize their goals. So, you know, obviously there will be times in, in the systems that we have because the structural barriers are so great that people may turn to infant formula as a resource. And what we would like to see is systems that actually enable people to continue breastfeeding as they wish. Now, um, we, you talked earlier about uh, the marketing, particularly to poor women uh, in other countries. And um, I want to point out that we're in, in my neighborhood, in my community, in the Catskill region of New York. Uh, poverty is, is a, a major issue up here. And I think there is some bias that poor women don't want to breastfeed. And I have found that not to be true. I have found instead that they encounter these other barriers. And one of the barriers used to be, and I, well, for one of the barriers used to be, and I don't know if it still exists because we worked hard to stop this. I, in New York City, we worked to get an ordinance passed that uh, where, uh, so women were being given infant formula as part of sort of this uh, congratulatory uh, package that they would be able to take home with them. And it had formula in it. And there was a push to not put the formula in unless the woman was not breastfeeding. Um, is that something that's common or is, is are women still going home with infant formula? Yes. So unfortunately, so we as a nation do not have... Uh, a universal standard for these rules. And, and that's, of course, something that can be enacted. But the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative was a, uh, an initiative established in 1991 to basically implement some of the steps to successful breastfeeding that we know works. Mm -hmm. And so 
in that system, there are there's training for providers and, you know, the enabling of breastfeeding support and, and proximity from, you know, the moment that the baby is born because, you know, separation was obviously a standard before then. So, you know, establishing that contact and enabling it was key, but also one of the criteria for becoming baby-friendly is that you do not have these kinds of marketing opportunities within the hospital. So that is happening in the baby-friendly hospitals that are certified and some other hospitals that are sort of on their way to becoming certified. But right now, you know, only about a fifth of people in the U.S. are giving birth in these facilities. So Mm. these kinds of marketing strategies continue. Mm. And then the other way companies are subverting some of this is through digital marketing. So what's happening is without our actual knowledge, our data are being used in ways to essentially have predatory marketing from the time that people are pregnant. Mm. And this is what we're really, really seeing scaled up because it's it's a weak regulatory space. And so what's happening is as soon as companies learn that a person is pregnant, they may actually have formula show up at their house. Wow. Yeah. So there's that other way and, and digital ads. So if you are on social media, um, you will start getting targeted advertisement um, with these claims that I mentioned. And, and they're actually far more sophisticated and more compelling than I you know, wow. provided. So all of that is coming and into your space, including these parent clubs, pregnancy clubs, sometimes um, equipped with health professionals that can sound extremely authoritative. And so there's a whole series of stuff. And then conferences and, and, and you know, other places, venues where health professionals are cultivated as well, mm-hmm. seeking opportunities. So there's a lot of that happening at the same time. And, you know, it's very, very sophisticated. And that's part of what we try to do in The Lancet is to really draw attention to this the system. So rather than thinking about it as, as one piece, you know, oftentimes you only see one part of the marketing is we actually wrote about the entire playbook that the industry uses and the different elements of it to help people understand how sophisticated, how well funded it is and how um, self-reinforcing it is and how this really merits action because ultimately we are talking about a human right. This is a human right to be able to breastfeed as desired and a number of other rights. You know, there's a sophisticated set of human rights that are at stake here and we are violating them through um, not enforcing the regulations appropriately and allowing companies to take advantage of these weak systems. Um, so it, it, uh, to our listeners, I, I would like to suggest that if, if you know somebody who is pregnant, uh, have a conversation with them about their intentions to breastfeed. Make sure they know that there are going to be other kinds of pressures on them to formula feed and um, see what you can do to help them get to get the support that they will need to breastfeed. I want to point out the Affordable Care Act uh, requires that insurance companies and Medicaid pay for a breast pump for a woman who is going to breastfeed. And um, 
it's it's it, it, you might want to uh, check out a lactation specialist. I had somebody on recently who was a doula who recommended that uh, people um, absolutely ask for lactation specialists for that help in the early early uh, days of, of, of breastfeeding. Um, this is so very quickly, uh, Cecilia. If people would like to learn more about this issue, is there a website you recommend? Sure. So, you know, for those who want to read the Lancet Breastfeeding Series, it's all open access, and you can just type in Lancet Breastfeeding Series, and of course, I'll send it over to you for the show notes. Um, the Global Breastfeeding Collective has a lot of resources that were produced um, with the launch of the series, as well as a Congress that was held at WHO this summer. Um, and so there's a lot of materials on what works for breastfeeding, how to support breastfeeding, and how to enact laws and regulations that help us address some of these issues with marketing. So, you know, all the systems have to be addressed, not just one, yeah. obviously, um, health systems included, and the workplace and the regulatory yeah. space to yeah. achieve Great. equity. Dr. Cecilia Tamori is an associate professor and director of global public health and community health at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing with a joint appointment at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Cecilia, thank you so much for coming on to Health Center in the Catskills today and talking about this really important issue. Thank you. I'm Diana Mason. You've been listening to Health Center in the Catskills on WIOX Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains.